I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of John chapter 14. John chapter 14 verse 15 is where we want to begin this evening. Um, I'd like to say that it has been a, 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 a full day it feels like already, but it's been a wonderful day um, getting to know you, spending time with you and talking after services and between services and at the potluck this afternoon. I've waited, um, it's been over a couple years ago, the meeting was even brought up, and I've so much anticipated meeting you, and you in turn have been so much more than I could have ever expected. Um, you all love the Lord, you love one another, um, you love um, those who are lost and need Jesus Christ, and that really, really, really makes for a strong congregation of God's people um, that can have a wonderful work um, in the world that you live in, just living your lives as Christians and letting your light shine, people are going to know that you're different, and that can help attract people to Jesus Christ. Appreciate your comments about the lessons this morning. I've never have done a series where every lesson was about grace one way or another, so um, appreciate your comments and your feedback, and, and that was very encouraging to me. And I appreciate very much um, getting to meet um, Brother Luke and, and his family. I've heard good things about the congregation here, and um, enjoyed meeting him, look forward to spending more time with him, and appreciate the good work that he does in preaching the gospel here, and you supporting and lifting up his arms and encouraging him. Tonight, um, we're kind of transitioning a little bit. We um, kind of, this morning, uh, left off talking about what is the basic meaning, it means to, to be a disciple. And we kind of keep using the word disciple, don't we? We didn't use the word Christian. Disciples, what was that, over 200-something times in the Bible, and Christians use three times, and it means the same thing, but disciple describes what we do. The other one is our name. And we just talk about what it means. It means simply that I want to know Jesus as a person. Simply, I want to know what he taught. He is the way of my life. He is my truth and my guiding light. I don't need any other truths. I just, I need him. I want him. I desire him. I want to please him. Then we looked at grace this morning. And just think about, you remember it was in the morning that Jesus went back to the temple in John chapter 8 and then it was in that morning that woman was brought to him and her total embarrassment um, for her sin, adultery and everything that she went through, thought she was going to be killed and they were just using her and she's, taught, she's tossed at the feet of Jesus and Jesus gives her grace, he forgives her and he goes, she goes home that morning and, you know, we went home this morning. Well, actually, we went to a potluck. And just think if that was the woman today, and now it's that evening, and she's thinking about what happened to her this morning. She probably could not stop thinking about Jesus. She knew what grace felt like. She knew what it tastes like. She saw what grace looked like. And that was the point of our lesson this morning, that we can believe and know and feel the same thing and to give balance to about grace, tonight I want us to talk about because of God's goodness, of His favor, what He's bestowed upon us, um, what we can do and how we can react when it comes to um, God's grace. And that is going to be that grace teaches us. Um, in our world today, and it still goes on, I talk to people, you talk to people, it's all going to either be all about grace and just God's love and nothing about keeping God's commandments. And that's, that's really your Protestant Christian religion thought for the most part. We want to identify every church with that. Don't want to call everybody with the same brush. But that seems to be kind of a major thing uh, today. 
Or you can go something like Catholicism, and it's all about law keeping. And it's just you got to keep the law, or you know, you're not going to make it to heaven at all. And it's either all or or. But in the Bible, the one who is full of grace and truth, he gives us balance, doesn't he? And we're going to look in the Bible. The New Testament gives us balance. Really, the whole Bible gives us balance. But grace teaches us, and we're going to go to another passage that uses that term. But I want to go to John chapter 14, and I want to give a little bit of context to John 14 as we look at this tonight. John chapter 14, as you know, is Jesus has already had the Passover meal with his apostles. This, was, this is the end of his last week before he's going to be crucified. Uh, he's washed the disciples' feet already. He's told them that he's going to be leaving them. He will not leave them orphan. Uh, this was a, a time of the ones that have been with him for three years who he loved. Um, they're going to be shocked. Their, their faith is going to be blown out of the water when he's crucified. And, and this is that evening going into uh, Thursday evening, Friday morning, and it's 9 o'clock Friday morning. He's nailed to the cross. So the words here had to weigh heavy on Jesus like a heavy curtain. They meant a lot to Jesus. He's preparing him for the Holy Spirit to replace him and to lead them after he goes back into heaven. But they, they, Jesus loved them, and he's speaking to them. And one thing Jesus says when you come to John chapter 14, and I want you to come down to verse 15, something that was very heavy and important on the heart of Jesus is Jesus says in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, now that's, there's not a whole lot more a preacher or what we could elaborate on um, that comment. But this whole idea that grace is either or, how do you fit John chapter 14 verse 15, he who's full of grace and truth into that? How you fit that is when you see Jesus, you see grace. When you see Jesus, you see truth. And they go together. They work together. They work together hand in hand. I'll give you a true story. About 20 years ago when I was preaching in Montgomery, Alabama, from time to time I would work at the Bible bookstore there, and it was owned by a Christian. And I worked behind the counter where they sold Bibles. And the, and the time many people buy Bibles was around the holiday season. It was the busiest time. And a lady came in, and we talked, and, and I'm always wanting to know more about somebody. And so we talked, and come to find out she was Methodist from the Methodist Church, and she said that, um, she's buying two Bibles to send to two missionaries that her church supports. And so I asked about the missionaries and asked where they're at. And if she's Methodist, the missionaries were Presbyterian in another country somewhere. Well, now she's got my curiosity up. You're Methodist and, you know, they're, they're Presbyterian. I'm, I'm just, you know, thinking for a moment there. And and so I asked her, I said, you know, why is it that your church supports missionaries that believe and teach a different truth than your church? And it was a friendly conversation. There was nothing conversational about it. I was curious. But then she gave me the answer. She said, and I have it written down so I have it memorized. She said, oh, you don't understand. In following Jesus, it doesn't matter what you believe about truth. And it, she, it jolted me. I was stunned. And I'm thinking, I don't understand that. I, how can we say in any church in America today that it doesn't matter what you believe when it comes to truth? That, in a sense, is how truth has been 
I'm not sure what you would use. Watered down, not made as important, becoming very relevant. You really don't want to just nail anything down in the Bible. It's all about love and it gets kind of fluffy and makes you feel good and everybody's going to heaven type of thing. And, and so it stunned me that, you know, in her belief and her teaching, it's kind of like that mantra today that we talked about, everybody finds their own truth. Let me say something about that. Um, everybody needs to find their own truth. If that's the truth, there is no truth. <laughs> there is nothing true. Do we do that with our DMV handbook when it comes to driving down the road? Everybody has their own truth. How do you feel like driving? Or when you go to work, or kids in school, when you're going to take a test or study in school, well, there's no really true, well, you know, in you know, some places that's actually happened. There's really no, just put whatever answers on the test you want. Write your own truth down on the test. Life doesn't work that way. We don't work that way. Business doesn't work that way. Society cannot work that way. Something has to hold everything together. And there has to be absolute truth. When it comes to Jesus, there is absolute truth and when we come to the law of Christ, and we come to, to Jesus Christ. So he who is full of grace and truth, um, before he's crucified and nailed to the cross, he used the word commandments. And, and I would say that to my denominational friends. Jesus believed that we have commandments. Jesus actually said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. That goes along with what we talked about this morning, about what it means to be a disciple. I love him as a person. I want to know his teaching. I want to learn how to become under him and be his disciple, to follow him. Um, we don't follow churches. We don't follow movements. We, we don't follow denominations. We follow the person of, of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you to turn with me in your Bible now to the, the book of uh, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And there's an interesting phrase in this passage in Titus chapter 2 um, where we see that grace and truth, grace and teaching, grace and right living all go together and all work together. And I want to come to our passage. I want us to read it, and we're going to get some context to it, and then we're going to make some observations and, and, and to finish up our lesson tonight. But we're in Titus chapter 2, and we're going to look down at verse 11. And we've been talking about grace, and that's really going to be the third word I have in my Bible in the New King James in verse 11. But notice how it talks about how to live instructions or commandments, how to live our lives but it begins with grace. Look at verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, and let no one despise you. I want you to go back to verse, to verse, verse 11. I want you to look at the word grace in your Bible. And verse 12, I want you to look at the word teaching in your Bible. And what I've read from those who understand the Greek and the flow and the meaning of the words and the richness of a meaning behind a word is the way this is written God is saying grace is our teacher. Grace is presented to us, the grace of God that brings salvation unto all men, teaches us. We know what it means to have a teacher. We go to elementary school, we have a teacher. I remember my teacher from first grade, Miss Sarah. I remember reading Dick and Jane books in first grade, and 
You have a teacher, and you have a teacher in middle school. You have a teacher in high school. You have a teacher in college. You might have a teacher on the job that you have training that takes place on the job. And, and we, have, we, we learn um, from what we're taught on the job. We know what it means to, to have a teacher. And so in this text, I want us to realize that, that the text is saying the grace of God is our teacher. So grace, while that is God's favor that I can have forgiveness of my sins, I'm baptized into Christ, I confess my sins as a Christian, and I'm forgiven again in Christ, and going on and, and having that relationship with God. Grace is my teacher, and we're going to look at some things in just a moment that, that grace teaches us. But first I want to give a little bit of context simply in this chapter. When we go back to verse 1 of chapter 2, notice how the text says to, to Titus to teach those who are um, on the island of Crete. He says, but as for you, speak the things that are proper for sound doctrine. And what does he talk about from verse 1 down to verse 10? He talks about older men how to live, younger or older women how to live, um, younger women how to live, uh, how the um, younger men are to live. That's sound doctrine. And that leads up to that, that transitioning word in verse 11, 4. When you see the word for, you ask the question, what is it there for? It's because of what he just said. For the grace of God has taught us how to live as older men, older women, younger men and younger women, as teenagers. God has taught us how to, how to do that. Crete is a very interesting place with a very interesting history. Crete has a very rough terrain. Uh, it can be in the center of it, the highest mountains, and you can go all the way down like you're at the beach at Myrtle Beach at Crete. It's just very rough terrain. The island of Crete is southwest of Greece. Uh, it is between the Aegean and the uh, Mediterranean Sea. It's about, it's interesting in size. The width is from here to London. London is almost, um, Kentucky is almost 30 miles. Crete is 30 miles wide. But its length is 150 miles long. That's from here to St. Louis. So Crete is this long, slender, skinny island. It was, it's kind of a rough area. Uh, on that island there's a mountain. And that is where it is believed the mythical god Zeus of the Greeks was born. You can go to Crete today and there's a cave that they say that's the cave where Zeus was born. Zeus was kind of the king god of the Greeks. Uh, Zeus was the, the father of Hercules in Greek mythology. But it's also believed that Crete gave birth to the, the Greek culture that existed, Greeks, you had Jews and Greeks in the time of Jesus. And so the Greek culture is thought to have come out of Crete and spread around. But in this area, what we see is that they were very crude and a very rough and a very brutish people. As rough as the terrain was, so was the people. Look back at chapter 1 and talking about the qualifications for elders. He comes down to verse 10. While you need shepherds in the church, you're going to need them at Crete especially. He says, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Titus had his work cut out for him. Can you imagine baptizing and studying people who have lived always as liars, they're evil beasts, and they're lazy gluttons, they're just brutes, 
that you have a Bible study with and, and they want to be baptized into Christ. I got a phone call uh, several years ago from a guy who rides a Harley Davidson. He's a motorcycle man. Never met the man in my life. And he said, you know, I'm a member of this church down the road from your church and he said, I've been attending this community church all these years and I took a Bible correspondence course online from one of your congregations and I want to be baptized. And I, and, and, and I went and talked to my pastor and the pastor said, don't worry about that. Come on in the office and we'll take care of that. So he goes on to the, into the preacher's office. He says, let's have a little prayer with Jesus and, and you'll be saved and ask Jesus in your heart to, um, to, to be your Savior. He said, no, I want to be baptized. You don't have to be baptized. <laughs> All you got to do is believe. Baptism is a work. You don't have to, to be baptized to be saved. No, I studied my Bible. I want to be baptized, and his preacher would not baptize him. So what happens? He calls our church, and I said, oh, sure, meet me at the building. And I pull up, and I just see a guy wearing a leather jacket and on a Harley, and he was bigger than me. And it's just me and him at the building. A little bit intimidating. So we go in, and uh, we sit down, and I'm going through, you know, what is the purpose of baptism? And, you know, he's like, no, you know, you're not really just being baptized to be saved. You're making a lifelong commitment for, to Jesus Christ, and he, he knew that. And you're not being baptized in just any denomination. You're being added to the Lord's church. By the time I got there, I knew I was boring him. He knew all this. I said, you just want to be baptized, don't you? He said, yes, I've studied this. And so what was interesting was seeing a, a big Harley guy get into one of our little baptism outfits and, and baptized him. A year later, I, I don't remember where I was at, working at church office somewhere. I get this phone call, and uh, he says, um, you want to go out to lunch? I said, sure. He said, you know, today's special. I said, sure. Why? He said, so it was a year ago today you baptized me. I said, let's go to lunch. And we went, wonderful man, still a dear, dear friend today. And, and what you find is, is that at Crete, you know, they were a rough bunch. And um, what we see is that Titus had his work cut out for him. And so that kind of leads us to make sense why he comes down in chapter 2 and talks about grace is our teacher, how we ought to live. And I want us to notice what he says in this passage about grace being our teacher, and we sit as students at the feet of grace and let me say this about grace being your teacher or my teacher. Is how much do you and I really, really appreciate what Christ has done for us? What do you think and what do you feel when you eat the Lord's Supper and you think about the cross? Do we sing songs sometimes that you can't get all the way through the songs because you might get a little bit too emotional thinking about that's how much God loves me and that's what God has done for me? When I first started preaching, and I went to Alabama, I was only preaching 11 months, and I met a man in that congregation that became, to me, a friend for life. And he passed away about this time last year. He was, he was 55 years old. A friend for life. He's always encouraged me. When I need a laptop for preaching, he provided the laptop. I got a laptop here, the latest last laptop he gave to me just for preaching always helping, uh, always aiding. Whenever our new congregation, he heard we were going to buy a church sign, he said, here, use this credit card. I'll buy the church sign for you. Always been there for me. Always had my back. We've, we've studied together. We've taught people together. We've fought spiritual battles together. We've been, we, were, we were together for 18 years, well, longer than 18 years, working together for the Lord. He became like a second father um, to my children. During COVID, 
and he had health problems. He got COVID. He's in Auburn, Alabama, and I'm over in Greenville, South Carolina, about four and a half hour drive. And he got COVID, and they did not have the medicine that he needed. But I had the medicine, and I did not have COVID. And me and my wife had to talk. If we take this medicine and we go give it to him, and we get COVID or our kids get COVID, we're not going to get the prescription from anybody else. We're not going to have the medicine. And we decided we're going to take it over to him. So I drove four and a half hours, gave him the medicine, talked to him for 30 minutes, drove four and a half hours back home because there was no other decision to make because he had been so good to me. He gave me grace. I owed him whatever I needed to do to help him. Do we feel that way about Jesus and God? when it comes to what God asks us to do to obey Him and to serve Him. In this text, we know, notice first the word grace in verse 11. And the word grace we understand to mean that God has given us favor, goodwill, looks upon us with good thoughts. God wants us to be saved. God wants to provide for us and take care of our spiritual needs. And then he goes down to the text and we see in verse 2 that phrase teaches us. Other translations, that's where grace is personified as a teacher. Other translations read this way. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. How big is your grace in your mind? How big is my grace in my mind? How big is God's favor toward you in your mind that you'll do things for God because of his great favor for you? That's what he's saying in this passage that grace teaches us. Another translation says teaches us not to live against God, because he's been so good toward us, nor to do evil things the world wants us to do. So grace is our teacher, and grace is, he goes on to say in verse, verse 12, he says, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. What we're seeing is, when it comes to the idea of obeying God, it's not going to be grace or keeping commandments, not either or, they go together. Because of God's love, because of God's goodness, because of what God has done, I want to obey him. He does require me to obey him, but I don't just do it out of, out of requirement. I do it because I want to do it for God. I want to obey God. I want to please God. Therefore, I'm going to want to give up ungodliness and worldly lust. We have it all around us today in the way people dress and what you have on TV. If you can't turn on, trying to, when's the last time you tried to find a good series to watch on Netflix or something? It's hard to do. It's hard to find a good series sometimes to watch on the Disney Channel. <laughs> That's supposed to be something cleaner. But whenever you look at the world that we live in today, we are to be different and we are to deny ungodliness and worldly lust that tempt us. But God being, grace being our teacher, we want to and have a desire to please him. When we look in this text, we come on down in the passage and it also says in this text that we should live soberly. That word soberly means to, to have our senses, to, to, to think in a wise way, a stable way, the way we look at the world, the way we look at challenges that we might have in our life. It means to live with a sound mind. Um, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to live with a sound mind, not to live or allow the world to color our minds the way the world would color our minds. We see, fifthly in this passage, and I want you to look at verse 12, he says that we ought to live righteously. And a lot of times we look at words like righteousness and righteously, 
and we kind of, you know, you know, really, how do I get my mind about what does it mean to live righteously or be righteous? If you just take your finger and cover up all the letters but the first five, what word do you get? You get the word right. That's what that word means. It means for me that I want to have right living before God. I want to be and know that I am right in God's eyes the way I live my life as a Christian. Jesus Christ would say in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, and these will go away into everlasting punishment and the righteous into eternal life. We see in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 21, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The book of 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness, rightness, is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. So for us as Christians, we want to live right. We want to live right to praise God. We want to know that, that we're right with God and that God looks upon us with his eyes that, that we are right and acceptable before him. And then he goes on to say, finally, he says to live godly. What is that when you look at the word godly in the text? Um, to live uh, denying ungodliness, worldly lust, uh, soberly, righteously. What does the word godly mean to you when you hear the word godly? In this passage, the word godly literally means to be devout in a holy manner, attributing to God those things which rightly belong to him. Let me tell you what devout does not mean. You remember the parable of the, the, the Pharisee and the publican that went up to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee kind of stood off. He kind of stood up front there where he'd get close, you know, where he'd be like the main stage. And he's praying to God and telling God how good he is and how lucky God is to have him and all the good works he's done. And then he had the audacity to look down on one of his brethren and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this Jew over here. Aren't you lucky to have me? That's not devout. What is devout was the man over here who would not look up into heaven but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful for me. I'm a sinner. He understood what was owed to God. He wanted to be godly. He wanted to be the best he could for God. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, that man went down to his house justified. Jesus was saying that man went down to his house saved. That's the difference. So devout means that, not that I'm holier than thou or holier than other people, but I want to strive, live in such a way to, to render to God rightly the things that belong to him. One translation reads, in a way that shows that we serve God. Another translation, a way that shows true devotion toward God. True story, and I'll tell you the story, and you tell me how you would answer it. <laughs> it's one of the stories where, as a Christian or as a preacher, you're put on the spot. Uh, in Alabama, we had a, a large family that attended our congregation, and we had the grandparents, and we had the kids, and we had, the, you know, the grandkids. The we had the whole tribe there, and, and the, the, the older man in the congregation was a very humble, very kind man, but he struggled with one really big struggle in his life, and it was alcohol. Uh, he, he dealt with alcoholism. He did not want to be an alcoholic. He hated falling into the bottle. He hated being that way. And he would give it up and he would get past it and live faithfully to God and fall back into it. He'd give it up, live faithfully to God, fall back into it. And, and for him, it was not a game. It was life or death. 
And I'll never forget being, he's a, he's a big man, never forget being in his house, and, and literally he's sitting in a chair. I was there for, for some other reason, but he wanted to talk. His wife is there, he is there, and he just starts shaking, and he's crying. And he says, Luther, he says, is God going to send me to hell because I can't give up alcohol? I ask you, how do you answer that question scripturally? I prayed. <laughs> you know, when things happen real fast in your mind, it's like you think a lot of things just real fast flash through your mind, and, and right there the answer comes up. And I said, his name's Barry. I said, well, Barry? Barry's church every Sunday. Barry struggled. It was life or death. It was not playing games with Jesus or playing games with God. It was really an addiction. And I said, Barry, I said, when that happens, you know you don't need to do it. You need to give it up. Drunkenness is a sin. Ask God to forgive you, and Barry, you'll be forgiven. Was that the right answer? That's the answer I find. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all righteousness. Barry struggled with that all of his life. I think for the most part, he overcame that. But, you know, for us as Christians, when we look back at this text, God wants us to deny ungodliness, deny worldly lust, to live soberly and righteously and godly, giving to God what is due to him in this present age, looking for the coming of Jesus Christ, because in verse 14, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us, buy us back, rescue us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. All of us struggle with something in our life. Barry's was alcohol. The thing about Barry, he was transparent, he was honest, he fought it all of his life. What is your struggle? What is my struggle? Is it telling the truth? Is it letting a bad word slip now and then? Is it something like envy? Hate? Whatever. We all have struggles. And for us as Christians, God's goodness toward me and God's goodness toward you has taught me, grace is my teacher, to be a better Christian. Grace was a teacher at Crete to, 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 treat, to, to teach these Cretans that are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Uh, matter of fact, do you remember what actually um, Paul said to Timothy? Look back at chapter 1, verse 5. I mean, the churches in Crete had some struggles. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. They needed elders. They needed things to be corrected in churches because you're taking a rough bunch and you're trying to make them into saints and Christians. And, and that's what they needed to know and that's what they needed to learn. So for us as Christians, what we see is that we as Christians, uh, grace is our teacher and it teaches us to live in such a way that is going to be pleasing to God. I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 10. All of us are familiar with the, the story of the rich young ruler, Mark chapter 10. And when we look at Mark chapter 10, Jesus is going about his ministry, 
And you could not have found a more sincere, eager, Jesus-seeking person. This person was, comes to Jesus. When you look at the text in verse 17, we're in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, the man is running to Jesus to get to Jesus. Uh, there's an urgency there. There's a desire there to, to follow Jesus and to know how to go to heaven. Look at verse 17. Now as he was coming out the road, one came running, knelt before him, asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Um, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have observed from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell what you have, and give it to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and come and take the cross and follow me. And he was very sad at this word and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. When you look at verse 22, he's going away grieved, when you look at verse 17, he is running with eagerness toward Jesus, wanting to know about eternal life. Whenever we look at God and we look at God's commandments, keeping God's commandments are important in our life. God gives us time to learn and time to grow, but when we know what is right and we don't choose to do what is right, that affects our relationship with Jesus. It was just this one thing in this man's life. He comes and he kneels before Jesus. He calls Jesus um, good teacher. Jesus really, I believe, is appointing him back to don't just look at man, but look at God. Uh, whenever we look at the answer Jesus gives in verse 18, and, and Jesus mentions the commandments, and he says, I've done all these things. And it says that Jesus says in verse 21, the text says about Jesus, that Jesus looked at him, He's looking in the man's face. The man's looking up with all this hope and expectation. And Jesus is looking in his face. And Jesus, in that moment, it says he loved him. This man had so much eagerness to do right within him. But Matthew's account says, he said to the man, if you will be perfect, you're missing something. You need to give up your love for your wealth. You need to give up the desire for the wealth, because that's your problem for following me. Now, how can we say that keeping commandments are not important? But what is the commandment between me and you that keeps us from giving our total devotion to Jesus that he deserves when we um, look at serving Jesus? So with grace, there also comes that we have laws to keep. We have commandments to keep. That is natural. And they work together as we walk by faith to serve God. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I always find this passage very interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You know, when I go back to the, the lady at the Bible bookstore, and uh, she said to me that truth is not important, and, you know, that really we're not, I guess, under truth, or you can believe your own truth, or truth is not important to go to heaven. And then there's going to be the idea that comes up that we're not under law, we're just under grace. We're not under keeping commandments, we're just under love. And again, our religious world makes it either or. The Bible says it's both, they go together. 
the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote so much about grace in Ephesians chapter 2, that by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. Paul wrote that. Well, Paul is the one that's writing this, and this is, this is one of these great Bible passages about, um, about evangelism and seeking saving that it was his loss. Paul would do everything he could to try to reach people. Look at verse 19. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. What we're going to see, we'll put it on the screen, is that Paul says that we're under law to Christ. He says, for though I'm free from all men, I've made myself a servant of all, to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews, I've become as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as those under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, now that would be Greeks. Um, as without law, but then he says this, not being without law toward God, but under law to Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, that by some means I might say some, and I do this for the gospel's sake, in verse 22. But look back at what Paul says in verse 21. To say that truth does not matter, keeping God's commandments does not matter, that does not fit what the Scriptures teach. It does not fit what God says in the Bible. It doesn't fit what Paul says here in the Bible. Paul says here two times, he says in verse 21, that I am under law toward God. And then he says, he says, he says, but not without law toward God. He has law toward God. He obeys God's law. But then he says, but under law toward Christ. With Christ, the one we studied this morning is full of grace and truth, we are under law to Christ. One translation reads this way. I am ruled by the law of Christ. Another translation. I obey the law of Christ. Paul is not teaching men that they're under a system of perfect law keeping to go to heaven. He is saying that we are under law of God and commandments that God has given. And there's a difference. And tomorrow night we're going to talk more about are we saved by perfect law keeping? And I think it's a challenge that we have sometimes in the Lord's church. Do I have to always be perfect all the time to go to heaven? Is there room in remedy when I sin and make mistakes? And we're going to study that more tomorrow night. But whenever Paul says, I am under law toward Christ, he is not saying, I'm under that since I was baptized in Acts chapter 22, that, you know, I got to be good until the day I die or because or I got to keep law perfectly. He's not talking about perfect law keeping. He's talking about there are is law, but there's also walking by faith, there's also grace, and there's also forgiveness for us. Look in your Bibles with me, if you will, turn over to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Sometimes Bible words um, carry the same meaning. Uh, you'll have words like um, commandment, you might have words like gospel, uh, you have words like truth, you have words like law. And many times those are referring to the same thing. Sometimes they're referring to maybe something a little bit differently. The context has to determine that. But notice how many times those words are used to get around telling us how we're saved. And once we're saved, what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, come down to verse 22. And you pick up on these words, truth, gospel, commandments, law, whatever the words might be, the word of God. Look how the words are used in the text. He says in verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God, 
which lives and abides forever, because all, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Did you pick up on four or five words there that are different, but they kind of mean the same thing? When you look at verse 22, how did you get saved? How do we get saved, Peter? How do we purify our souls, Peter? Peter says, you did that by, there's that word, obeying. <laughs> you obeyed something. You obeyed a commandment. He says, you obeyed the truth. He goes on to say in verse 23 that we're born again. And we're born again by the Word of God that teaches us how to be born again. And then we see in verse 25, again, the Word of the Lord mentioned, but at the end of verse 25, he says this was by the Gospel. So we have the idea of truth, the idea of the Word of God, the idea of the Gospel. They all come together that grace teaches us that I am under God's truth. I am under the Word of God. I am under the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that, that I may serve Him in such a way that the please Him and the please God, that um, I'm, that's the way that as Christians we, we live. And to be saved, keeping commandments is part of it. Keeping commandments perfect till the day we die, is that how, how it works? No. But keeping commandments is part of it. That's part of walking by faith. Walking by faith when we sin, we ask God to forgive us. We go on keeping God's commandments. We pick ourselves up and keep on going. So it's not perfect law keeping. But it is law-keeping, as Paul said, under law um, to Christ. And finally, how do we reconcile this idea of grace and law in our daily walk with God? Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We come down to verse 14. So, he's, he's finished up saying in Romans chapter 5 that... Um, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, Moreover the law entered, that offense might abound, and where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And we talked about that this morning. And then he goes into chapter 6, it says, So what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin, that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized in the Christ, Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore you are buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we shall walk in the newness of life. So that old question, can we continue in sin that grace may abound, Paul says, let me take you back to your baptism. Do you remember what happened at your baptism? You died to sin. You died with Christ. And just as Christ took our sins to the cross and was nailed to the cross, and my sins were nailed to the cross and taken away through the cross, when I'm baptized, he has that sacrifice for our sin. When I'm baptized, I'm buried with Christ. I died with Christ. And what does it say in the text in verse 4? We arise to walk in a newness of life. A newness of life in what way? I'm forgiven by God's grace. and I'm forgiven. All my sins are gone. God does not hold those against me any longer. And I live as a forgiven person, a newness of life. I'm a Christian now. I'm a disciple. I have a new life. I have a spiritual life of connection with God. So in talking about that, he comes on to talk about, again, obeying God and, and reconciling this idea of grace and law together. And look what he says in verse 14. He says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Don't live in it. Don't let it control you. Don't let it control your internal destiny. 
For you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, where to sin to death or obedience to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. That form of doctrine, I believe, is back in verse 4, our baptism. So when we go back to our text, notice how he says in verse, four, in verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. Well, Paul said, I was under law to Christ. How do you reconcile those? Well, we have commandments from God. We have God's law and we have God's truth. We follow that. That's part of walking by faith. In this passage, in this verse, the term under law means you're not under a system of law, of perfect law keeping to go to heaven. How many of us, the day that we were baptized, can live a perfect life, not sin again, therefore God owes us heaven? Not going to happen. Didn't happen for me. Didn't happen to you. Didn't happen to any of us. But what we are under is a system of grace that when we do break law with God, we violate God's commandments, we can ask God for forgiveness, and He forgives us, and we pick ourselves up, and we continue to walk and live by faith. And that's what we're going to study tomorrow night. So we're under a system of grace. We're not under a system of law, and that way of perfect law keeping is what He means in that passage. So for us as Christians, we talked about grace this morning and talked about um, Jesus and everything He's done for us. What we see for us as Christians is that part of enjoying God's grace, enjoying our relationship with God, and being a Christian, that I am under law to Christ, that I have the commandments of Christ to keep, and I can't be like the rich young ruler. I can't choose what I'm going to obey and what I'm not going to obey. One thing, as a, really, that is praiseworthy of the rich young ruler, he was honest with himself. He was honest that I have that sin, I'm not going to give up my love for my possessions. I'm not ready to follow Jesus yet. He was honest with himself. But what, what's, what's interesting about that passage is, is that it was, just, it, was, it was sin. It was God's commandments that he would not keep. He understood that he needed to do that and to follow Jesus. For us as Christians, where are we at tonight in our relationship with God? Uh, I hope tonight's lesson has maybe kind of helped us understand that that grace and law work together. They're not against each other. And I think we, we knew that in the Lord's church. It's kind of good maybe to talk about and understand a little bit better. But everything begins whenever we become a Christian. God has given us His love and His grace. He wants you to hear His word, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. And He doesn't ask us to have perfect law keeping, but He asks us to do our best by having faithful living and that's what he asks us to do in following him. Are you ready to do that tonight? Are you ready to be baptized? Do you have maybe something in your life that is sin and you want prayers to overcome that sin and forgiveness this evening? And you can walk out of the building tonight uh, forgiven of that sin and be a stronger Christian. If we can help in any way, please come forward while we stand and while we sing.